Hello and welcome to Our UFOs Real with T.L. Keller. This edition of Our UFOs Real is brought to you by the Total Novices Guide Books. I'm T.L. Keller, author and former aerospace engineer at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, British Aerospace, and Douglas Aircraft, among others. On this program, we'll be looking into the myths and realities of unidentified flying objects, what most of us call UFOs. Why do people continue to report sightings of UFOs? Why do they report abductions, crop circles, and other highly strange events? All opinions expressed on this show are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of webtalkradio.net. And by the way, if you're a skeptic or you've had a UFO experience of your own and would like to appear on this show, at the end of the program we'll announce how to contact us. So strap yourself in and buckle up. You're in for a ride of your lifetime. We have as our guest Dr. Lynn Katai, and her name is spelled K-I-T-E-I. She has been working in education for years. Uh, she was originally, um, going back uh, a ways, a uh, uh, television personality. She had a health and wellness uh, segment on local uh, television program in Phoenix, Arizona. And then uh, she's still educating people, but on a totally different subject. Uh, welcome, uh, Dr. Lynn. Thank you so much for having me, T.L. It's uh, very intriguing how, how life takes its uh, little turns because it's actually ironic that I've been educating the, uh, the community worldwide on vital health issues since 1976 when I actually started at NBC in Philadelphia uh, with Jessica Savage at the time doing health reporting and I uh, really felt it was very important to educate not only the community, but certainly youth. And I have programs that uh, are prevention education programs for AIDS and teen pregnancy and substance abuse for uh, schools worldwide that are being distributed by Discovery Education and because I felt that it was really important to wake them up to the reality of vital health issues. And then this fell in my lap without any knowledge or interest in the topic at all in 1995 when both my husband who's also a physician and I had a very close sighting of anomalous orbs uh, very close to our home and I actually got pictures of it didn't know what to do with them uh, wondered for two years what this advanced technology was doing outside of a home we're pretty high in the mountains in Paradise Valley Arizona and have a panoramic view of the city skyline to the airport and the planes coming in all the time so we know what planes and helicopters and streetlights and car lights and even flares occasionally we see the deployed by the military so these were quite different from that and uh, nothing that I ever thought was was here on earth or at least um, earthly yes and, now, and actually uh, yours from our home let's just explain what an orb is right. it, it's basically a yellowish orange or reddish orange bright light well, actually, when, when we saw them, they were a little below us. And they were pretty close. They were only yards from our property. And there were three amber orbs, as you describe. And I call them an orb because the light did not extend outside the edge. And when, when I first saw them, uh, you know, I thought, oh, I've got to get my video camera. And uh, no one's going to believe this. But I didn't want to move, as most people will tell you when they see something extraordinary, because you don't know how long it's going to last. So I tried to take 
everything in mentally, the, the shape, the color, the size, and so forth. They were about three to six feet each, depending on how close or far they were. They were oval-shaped, actually, and uh, they were very closely aligned, like an egg on its side. And there was one on top and two closely aligned underneath. And the uniform amber color throughout didn't glare at all. Every other light out there glared. These didn't. These were very soothing, very mesmerizing. And, uh, you know, I thought to myself, if I don't get a picture of this, nobody's going to believe it. And I go running to the closet to grab my camera. I take sunset pictures all the time, and I have it handy. And I, as I'm grabbing it, my husband calls me back. He says, get over here quick. One of them is disappearing. And the top orb, and I always go back to the sighting because it was so close and, and personal, the top orb without budging started to dim, but in a way that it was imploding from the outside inwards very slowly, mechanically, like there was intelligence behind it. And when it got really, really small and then blinked out, it still felt like it was there, I have to admit. Uh, where did it go? It, 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 it felt like it was there actually for weeks afterwards, the three of them. But I stepped out on, on the uh, balcony, got a quick picture of the two lower oars, which actually is on uh, our website, the Phoenix Lights Network, at www.thephoenixlights.net. If you go to the photo page, you can see the view that we have from our balcony, which I'll get back to that in a second because it's a very interesting story with that. But um, the first picture that I took was the two lower orbs and immediately noticed an eerie silence as if time had stopped. It was really bizarre. And as intently as I was watching these two lower orbs, I didn't take my eyes off of them, it felt as if something was watching me. And it took a long time for me to admit that to anyone until after the mass sighting two years later. But going through my mind, I was thinking, who are you? What are you? Do you know that I'm here? I'd love to meet you. The next thing I remember, the left bottom orb started to dissipate, just like the top one did, just imploding very, very slowly. And I caught a quick picture of that. That was the only one that turned out at the time. But if you look at it, that's the last picture that I took. It's amazing because I ha actually caught one of them half disappeared and one's still there. But I didn't even know who to show it to and wondered for two years what this advanced technology was doing a little below us in a, over a private, gated, nestled in the mountains community. There is no way it was military. But, again, I, I didn't even investigate it. I just wondered if I'd ever find out. And two years later, these orbs, giant balls, it seemed like spinning energy when you look in, through a viewfinder or a, a telescope, appeared at a distance in uh, formations again. In fact, the second night of which, and this is January of 1997, two months before the mass sighting, was the first time I saw anything even remotely similar to the close sighting. And at that time, I caught this mile-wide phenomena head-on. If you look at the pictures, it, the, the data speaks for itself. Actually, the second picture is amazing because it looks like a V of five lights with two underneath it. And hundreds of people on March 13th, two months later, would describe this massive mile to two-mile-wide formation of lights that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to, or craft with five lights and two trailing. So I caught this picture two months before. But anyway, head on and then turning into a V. And it was so unnerving, uh, T.L., I have to tell you, not having had an explanation for the 95 close sighting that I called around the next morning, found air traffic controllers at Sky Harbor International Airport, 
who admitted to me, they were as excited, more excited than I was, uh, that I had seen it too, that this phenomenon popped up, this mile-wide phenomenon popped up over Class B restricted airspace. There's a 30-mile radius around the center of the airport. Anyone that goes into that airspace, particularly a 1,000 feet altitude as this was, must call into the tower, and no one did. So they were alarmed. They first looked on radar, did not show up on radar. They took their binoculars to look. And in their own words, there were six points of light that seemed to be attached to something, but they couldn't quite see what it was attached to, turning against the wind. And I, I was taking pictures of it doing that, and one of them was a meteorologist, so we knew what he was talking about. And after it turned, it moved slowly as a unit, as they described it in synchrony, behind South Mountain, which is the south of the airport. So when I asked, so what was it? There was silence on the other end of the phone, and one of the air traffic controllers says, beats me. I said, you're air traffic controllers. You're supposed to know it's in our airspace, and they had no clue. In fact, they said it definitely wasn't flares. It wasn't anything that they knew of, and here's their sky watchers. At any rate, we kept in contact. I continued taking photographs of these strange orb arrays up into and including March 13th. For me, it was another night, and I happened to catch the video. Uh, footage of the three endpoints, uh, three lights, big orbs uh, of a V or triangle above the city, and unbeknownst to me, at the same time for hours. And, and you know, when people describe the mass sighting, uh, unless they've read my book, and I have to say that I, I meticulously uh, documented every single little thing that I possibly could from everything that witnesses said that, that I spoke with, to media, to talking to the military, to um, taking pictures prior to, during, and after, uh, that I, I went to extreme lengths to have explained to me at university level, maybe optical physicist, Brooks Institute of Photography, and so forth, and, and 15 years later, it's still unexplained and has never been reenacted, but we can get to that if we have time. But at any rate, while uh, I was photographing this, thousands of people statewide were outside on a beautiful March evening, pretty clear evening, looking up at the sky purposely for a glimpse of the Hale-Bopp Comet, which was very clear in the northwest sky that night. And they also caught a glimpse of a mile to two mile wide either the lights that seemed to be attached to something or craft, and there were multiple craft. And we're talking many hours. Uh, actually, we have reports beginning as early as 3 p.m. in the afternoon on March 13th. 5.30, it was seen actually in New Mexico by Native Americans. 7.15, seen in California. And then a whole uh, series, of a parade was going on throughout Arizona for a few hours. 11.30, it was seen uh, in Nevada, and then even 5.30 the next morning, it was seen this massive phenomena was hovering over the tarmac when Boeing crew was coming into work. Yes. So this was going on for many, many hours and many activities. I mean, we're talking these orbs in different formations. Some people actually saw these craft with lights, and the orbs would detach from the craft, go out into the environment, and then redock with it. Others would see very low altitude. It's very important when you look at the data to describe it as it was. I mean, this was very low, rooftop level, totally silent. And we're talking gliding, like about 30 miles an hour, right over people's heads. We yes. Now, um, yeah, if we could just sort of back up there, this is all on March 13th, 1997. 
And it started not over uh, the city of Phoenix. It actually started right. north of Phoenix, correct? Right, right. But, but and, we do have, you know, uh, sightings that happened, daytime sightings as well as some sightings in uh, New Mexico and California. So there right. was a parade happening all over the place. Yeah. Right. But the mass, the um, mass, yeah, to answer your question, TL, the, the bulk of the reports, and that's why the media sometimes gets it wrong, um, you know, certainly came in after dark. So the bulk of reports was from 8 o'clock, you know, about the 8 o'clock hour to about 10 o'clock because that's when most people were outside and, and the most people saw it. Um, in fact, the first official call came in from a retired police officer in Paulton, Arizona, which is northwest Arizona. And you could hear we have a 911 police operator in our documentary and who finally came forward a couple of years ago because she retired and she, she wanted to say, you know, because the police said there was only a few calls and she wanted to share that there were hundreds of calls and she actually got calls and, and could document how one of the craft was coming right down throughout Arizona, uh, from northern Arizona to, to Phoenix, and actually about the same time at, at 8.20, 8.30, there was a call from a um, crewman, alleged crewman from Luke Air Force Base, about 3 a.m. the next morning to the National UFO Reporting Center in Seattle, Washington, Peter Davenport. And it's all recorded, very detailed. We have some of that recording in my book, and, and we share it in the documentary. And what he says, essentially, is that one of these objects appeared right over Central Phoenix, 7th Avenue and Indian School. Military jets were sent off with afterburners, and there were witnesses that saw this. And as they got closer, not only did their instrumentation go haywire in their cockpit, but when they got even closer, the object just blinked out. It disappeared and freaked out one of the pilots who this crewman said he helped out of his aircraft. So that so there was a lot going on, you know, in the 8 o'clock hour, hour, a little after 9 o'clock was when it was down toward Tucson, which is two hours south of Phoenix. And then... Uh, right before 10 o'clock, there, were, there was another big event here, which to us was almost like a finale, although people did see it afterwards, um, where a handful of us caught video around 10 o'clock, two of us before 10 o'clock, and then about 10, 15 after uh, 10 o'clock, there were two boomerangs, which have been very controversial um, for being flares. But the two of us that shot our video before 10 o'clock have been analyzed quite extensively and to this day are, are unexplained. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the um, uh, people who uh, saw uh, these um, craft, uh, his name was Bill Hamilton. He's an mm-hmm. old colleague of mine, a well-known uh, UFO researcher. Oh, yeah. mm-hmm. And uh, as this, these devices, actually there were a couple of reported, if I'm not mistaken. One was a V-shape mm-hmm. uh, with uh, six or seven lights on it. And another one was a huge uh, black triangle. Well, I, I actually have to pull you back a second because, number one, Bill was called to uh, the roof of the other videographer. That night, I have to tell you, I, I, I caught my video and actually was confirmed the next morning by air traffic controllers as being in the same spot, same location, same altitude, same six lights that by the time I got out there turned to three. Shortly after that is when um, Steve Blonder, who had also been photographing them, it's interesting that he had been seeing and photographing for days before, and called MUFON, and, and Bill was, uh, Hamilton was involved with MUFON at the time, and a whole group was on Steve's roof 
when suddenly this, it looks like an arrowhead. I mean, his his footage is so impressive because those lights are attached to something. I mean, there's yes. no way it was flared. So it's interesting that you bring up Bill's name. And also, Bill participated. And this is important because there were many craft. It wasn't just one or two. Um, if you look on the GAP page, GAP, Geospatial Animation Project, on the Phoenix Lights Network website, Bill Hamilton and Mike Tanner, two of the investigators in the case, actually took thousands and, and really hundreds of reports that were seen by multiple people from the National UFO Reporting Center. Uh, it took 12 years to do this. Um, the uh, Arizona MUFON uh, contributed as well as Village Labs, which is a clearinghouse locally, and Councilwoman Frances Barwood uh, received over a 1,000 calls here, Phoenix Councilwoman, and compiled eight or nine different crafts that people described. Now, it was illustrated on our website, and I hope people take a look at it because it's, it's so impressive. Uh, the illustrations are wonderful by Larry Lowe. And when you see that there were different crafts, now whether it was one craft that could morph into looking differently or a parade of different crafts, which Michael Tanner believes very strongly, um, or the perspective of where the person was standing at the time, we may never know. But yes, there were there were a number of different craft described with a number of different lights, a number of different shapes. Even one of them was discoid. Um, but you know, it's it's interesting when you look at the data, uh, and that's what's so important to look at the data. <laughs> that's why yes, I came course. forward after seven years of anonymity. So hopefully, people will. Hopefully they will. Um, Dr. Lynn, I'd like you to stand by. Our conversation continues in a moment. T.L. Keller's Are UFOs Real? is brought to you by the Total Novices Guidebooks. Would you like to know more about UFOs but are afraid to ask? Why do so many people still report UFO sightings? Why are they even here? A new book, The Total Novices Guide to UFOs, introduces the reader to the world of unidentified flying objects. You may have accepted the stories of weather balloons, hoaxes and optical illusions as the explanation of the UFO phenomenon, but just take a look at the Total Novices Guide to UFOs and your worldview will change. This large format book is printed in full colour with more than 500 pages of fascinating reports of UFO crashes, ET abductions, crop circles and UFO related stories, including the testimonies of 10 military officers who experienced UFO events and extraterrestrial beings. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs also explains why they are here and who pilots them. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is jam-packed with stories and reports from well-known UFO researchers such as Linda Moulton Howe, Timothy Good, Stephen Greer, Travis Walton, NASA astronauts Edgar Mitchell and Gordon Cooper. The Total Novices Guide to UFOs is available on the internet from the totalnovicesguide.com, amazon.com or from your local bookseller. So here uh, here you were in 1995 and you were actually filming these uh these uh three or two or one or or no orbs at at various times. Uh, did you feel or did you have the sense that you were trying to be contacted in any way? Uh, you know what? I, I have to admit, I mean, when, when I stepped out on the balcony and saw the two lower orbs and, and it seemed as if time had stopped. I mean, it was just absurd. And 
Um, Dr. Bruce McAbee, who has been very involved with the case uh, a year after the mass sighting, um, I had contacted him because we had another event that, that actually I alerted, alerted the other videographers about because I had seen the lights. It was the first time that I had seen them uh, at a distance since March 13th, and they were kind of muted because it was a, a fog, which is very rare. It was eerie. I mean, you could not, that whole weekend, you could not see beyond our street. Even my husband kidded, they could be there watching. But um, but anyway, I, I had alerted the other videographers that they might be back, and I had also gotten high-end equipment that the University of Arizona Optical Sciences Department recommended if they did come back because I had very, very low-end uh, cameras, which, thank goodness, I captured those wonderful pictures in 95 and 92 months before, in 97. But at any rate, there was another sighting in 98 that four of us got from four different vantage points, very different from the uh, March 13th. Uh, there were straight lines and mirror images and a giant pyramid at the end, but it was very impressive anyway. And I and I had contacted Dr. Backaby to, um, you know, take a look at that. And as an afterthought, I put the first and the last picture from the close sighting in '95 that I have posted on on the Phoenix Lights website photo page. And he gets back to me. He said, "Now you told me that that sighting was only a couple minutes." I said, "Okay, yes." He said. Uh, are you sure? I said, well, that's what I remember. And he said, ask your husband. And interestingly, my husband was inside. I was outside taking the pictures. And, you know, other than what I shared earlier, I don't even remember the last light disappearing very vaguely. I do not even remember coming inside or definitely not looking at it at the, at the um, uh, clock, and, you know, it's kind of fuzzy. But at any rate, um, he would never talk about it. He didn't want to hear about it. He just didn't want me to bring it up, so I didn't. And Dr. McAbee said, well, you have to cooperate. And I sat him down. This is three years later and said, you know, just tell me what, how long do you think that sighting was? And he said, I don't know, three, four minutes tops. And I went back to Dr. McAbee. He said, that's impossible. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, look at the pictures which I did, and they're, they're right there, and the data, again, speaks for itself. He said, first of all, and he had noticed there were four lights in the background in the first picture and two in the last picture. He said, first of all, the same exact phenomena that you captured two months before the mass sighting that was confirmed by air traffic controllers as being in Class B restricted airspace, 1,000 feet altitude, and on March 13th on video, is in the background in the same exact spot in 1995 as well. Now, as I mentioned earlier, some people said that, you know, when they were seeing these craft, the orbs detached from the main object went out into the environment and then later redocked with it. Well, is that a possibility for 95? We can surmise. But the point is, what really got him, he said, look at the skyline. This is the most important data that he discovered, which I would have never, ever noticed in a zillion years. He said there are many groups of lights on in the first picture that are off in the last picture. He, and we're talking groups of lights, not just individual lights. He said, and there were like six or seven of, of those groups of lights. And he said, that doesn't happen in a couple minutes. I want you to do an experiment. He had me go out on the balcony, stand approximately at the same spot I was in 95, take pictures of the skyline one night every hour, the next night every half hour. I took it another night every 15 minutes, and we'll see when the lights start going out. Well, I usually take a bath between 7 and 8 in the evening, and coincidentally, and I come not to believe in coincidence, this is one of them, it happened to be the night before my birthday. So this was like a, a great gift, I have to tell you. But anyway, I was taking a leisurely bath, and I usually take a bath between 7 and 8. So let's be conservative and say 8 o'clock is the starting point. 
the Galusa lights from the experiment start going out at 9 o'clock, and the last picture is indicative of 10.30, 11 o'clock. So he says to me, and I, I couldn't wrap my head around any of this, but he says to me, can I present this case at the 1999 MUFON International Symposium in Washington, D.C. that was coming up, and I said, sure. I said, this is your baby. You're the one that discovered that. would have never noticed. He was very meticulous. If you go on the website, the Phoenix Lights Network, and if you care to read the 21-page report, it's just really bizarre and, and very meticulous. And um, anyway, I said, the only thing I ask is that you keep my name out of it. I wanted to remain anonymous, which I did for seven years, by the way. But anyway, he presented the case in 1999, as the first authenticated photographic evidence ever of missing time, that there were not minutes but hours in between the pictures, and, and we only remembered minutes. So to answer your question, um, and I have to say I've never been regressed. I have no interest in doing that. But something obviously, and he he's even stated it in a in a in a, um, in a written statement that you know if it wasn't for the Phoenix Lights, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. <laughs> so something obviously inspired me and motivated me because I did feel compelled, I have to tell you, to run out every time the lights appeared and document them on film. I don't know if it was a scientist in me or, you know, having seen the closed sighting and know something's going on. I have no idea. But something has obviously not only inspired me to document them on film, but pushed my entire professional successful medical career aside. Because I, I pushed it aside for four years, T.L., and every single day I was at the computer, I was reading, I knew nothing about this topic, nothing. And I really had to educate myself. It was only, it was one week after the mass sighting when I found out that this was happening worldwide. I had no clue, and and that really blew me away. I mean, now thousands of people had seen what I saw and and documented on film, and then a week later I find out it's happening worldwide. What's going on here? And yes. I pushed my entire professional life aside to try to find a logical source and meaning for what I had witnessed and photographed. I have yet to find it. If anything, it opened up a whole new world to me that I ultimately felt obliged as an educator uh, to share this vital topic uh, in 2004 and, and actually went back to work to help put our younger son through medical school. He's a neurologist now and uh, was chief clinical consultant at the Arizona Heart Institute Wellness and Imaging Center while I pared down the book and edited down the best information I found to 230 pages and came forward in 2004 with the Phoenix Lights, a skeptic's discovery that we are not alone. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm still a skeptic. I mean, if somebody shows me what it is, hey, I'm open. I don't know what they are, but I know that they are. And it's time we get this out in the open and address it, accept it, and study it so we can find out who's driving these things yes. and also move forward in our own evolution. I mean, there's so much more in this to this story. I, I had mentioned at the beginning to, to tell that there's a there's two mountain ranges, South Mountain and the Estrella Mountain Range. And uh, there's a basin in between, and they intersect at a certain point. And if you look on the photo page, you'll, you'll see that, uh, that picture where they intersect. And what was interesting to me is that six months in another coincidence, six months before the mass sighting, I was asked to present my substance abuse prevention education program at the Gila Bend Indian Reservation School. They have one school. And their reservation, which is very sacred ground, is in between South Mountain and the Australia Mountain Range. And when you look at my pictures, I realized that in science we look for repeatability. I was seeing that these phenomena kept popping up in the same spot time after time, right where South Mountain and the Australia's intersect. So I called them up after the mass sighting. And I said, did anybody happen to see 
strange lights on March 13th, and they started to giggle. And I said, is that funny? And they said, are you kidding? You've been looking up at them for centuries. We call them sky mm. people, light beings. That yes. blew me away, I mean, in and of itself, because not only is it part of their culture and has been. In fact, the Estrellas was named by the Spaniards because of the history of the area. Uh, it means star in Spanish. And they believe that they're the gateway uh, or portal in that area, gateway to the stars, the Estrellas. And if you look at my data, maybe there is. It's uh, very, uh, very possible. You know, maybe one of the reasons why uh, they chose you was because you were an educator. Well, I have, to tell you, I have to stop you there. I have to stop you there because everyone is chosen to live a life here, and it's what we're awake to and choose to do. Look, my husband didn't want anything to do with it. Um, <laughs> so actually, I chose to pursue it. So, um, you know, I'm the one that, that chose to do this, uh, you know, whatever. I mean, everybody, and that, that's one of the things in my book. I mean, once um, I started writing and, and I only wanted to get the data out there, um, I realized it was pretty boring. So I started, you know, putting my own story. I did not want to come forward. But I have to share that I had also had a near-death experience as a, as a kid. And I go into detail on that. It might be connected to this. I'll let the, the people read it for themselves and decide for themselves. But, um, but I have to say that since my near-death experience at eight years old, I have been awake to the fact uh, that, you know, uh, it, it's, it's important to realize what comes before you and to, with open eyes and an open heart. And I've always done that. I thought everybody knew the secret ever since I was a kid. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it really changed my life then. And what was really interesting is that there were a number of witnesses to the Phoenix Lights that shared with me that they had also had near-death experiences as children that was reawakened by the mass sighting, just like I did. And I thought, whoa, could there be a connection between all unexplained phenomena, whether it's near-death experience, out-of-body experience, or unexplained aerial phenomena that have a mystical light associated with the experience? And lo and behold, again, I've tried to be so scientific with all this inquiry and and research, and I found uh, the Omega Project, which actually is a very thick, uh, hard-to-read book, um, a study done at the University of Connecticut by Dr. Kenneth Ring, uh, you know, just says it right there. I mean, they really found a connection between all unexplained phenomena as well as uh, Dr. Raymond Fowler, who was uh, involved with the Andreessen case and a number of other um, professors at university level uh, that really, you know, was, was quite riveting because not only were the, the uh, and I lay it out very simply in the book, not only were the experiences, whatever they were, near-death experience, um, contact, whatever, uh, not only was the experience very similar in and of itself, but the after effect, that's what got me. The after effect was so positive, so uh, life-changing, uh, an awakening, an enlightenment that happened to an individual that truly experienced what I call an up, and I'll explain phenomena UP, an up, um, because it is such a, a positive transformation, a connectedness that, that, that the person feels usually for the first time to the universe and to the earth and to yeah, each other that ha- has never been realized before and is really profound and, and as I said, world change, worldview changing. And, uh, you know, so I, that, I found that really interesting with the whole thing, even in real time, not only the long-term uh, transformation that happens uh, to an individual who truly experiences 
an unexplained phenomenon. Because I mean, look, everybody comes from a different background, from a different upbringing, from a different belief system, and some people can't deal with this, and some people don't want to deal with it, and that's Uh, okay. That's okay. If they want to feed into a logical explanation like flares or blimps or whatever, that's okay. That's okay. Mm -hmm. Everyone in their own time. But the data is there now, and that's why I had to come forward uh, with the book and then ultimately with the the documentary uh, a year later, which has won over a dozen international film festival awards. It's it's, uh, really amazing, yeah. Now I'm working on a curriculum, by the way. You've mentioned uh, unexplained. Uh, Let's, um, with a a couple of minutes we have left here. Let's talk about uh, two of the uh, official explanations. Now, one of them was uh, uh, from the U.S. Air Force. Uh, they said that uh, they were flares that were being dropped over Luke Air Force Base, uh, which was on the other side of the uh, the mountains. Now, you know, about 20 years ago, I was out near Area 51 in Nevada, and to, we were out with a group, a large group at the time. And behind the mountains, uh, a number of uh, lights uh, suddenly mm-hmm. appeared, and they were mm-hmm. reddish-orange. Mm-hmm. And uh, we all got excited, but within mm-hmm. about 30 seconds, we realized that these were nothing right. but flares. Right. Uh, right. They typically have uh, parachutes attached, right. and there's a lot of smoke coming right. from each of those flares. And it's obvious uh, that what you filmed uh, were not flares, because flares uh, fall at uh, uneven um, speeds, and they go in different directions, and Mm -hmm. it becomes quite obvious after a while with all the smoke and everything, uh, what you saw were not flares. Right. And the other other official explanation came from the governor of Arizona, who was uh, Fife Symington, uh, Symington at the time, mm-hmm. and uh, he, I, th- I believe he saw the uh, the lights as well, uh, but he put on a press conference uh, mm-hmm. because uh, there was quite a bit of turmoil uh, within the city council, and you had uh, articles appearing in the Arizona Republic, and he put on a press conference to uh, sort of, uh, oh, calm people down. And he said, we finally discovered the reason for the uh, Phoenix Lights. And he said, and here it is. And there was this, um, uh, one of his um, uh, assistants who walked onto the stage, believe this or not, and this is the governor of Arizona, Mm -hmm. dressed in an aluminum foil suit with these very long, uh, it seemed like about 10-inch fingers, and this uh, obvious... Um, part style alien Mm -hmm. head Mm -hmm. and he said this is the cause of it Mm -hmm. and of course this backfired on him and uh, I'm sure that he uh, regrets uh, ever having put that on well, you know, you brought up a couple of really good points. And when somebody says that the Phoenix lights were flares, I, I, it's just, you know, it, at this point, 15 years later, I, I mean, it's, it's beyond laughable because I know that they haven't looked at the data and certainly haven't read my book. Of course. Because as it unfolded, um, it's very interesting when you start putting the puzzle pieces together and you describe two of the main issues here. There was no investigation. There was no explanation, and there was no panic. Nobody panicked here. If anything, it was just the reverse. I was, I was starting to say before with the transformation, 
in real time. I mean, even uh-huh. kids who had seen Independence Day six months before and were scared when they first saw it because they, this gigantic thing was coming towards them. As it passed over, a calmness took over everyone. People were in joy. People were in awe and in wonder of this thing. I mean, it was a very low-altitude rooftop level. But there was no panic, I have to tell you, with the people. Now, what happened is that months later, first of all in May, when the councilwoman Frances Barwood, and she was vice mayor at the time, just mentioned in a council meeting, maybe we should look into this because so many of her constituents had called her, she got plastered. I mean, plastered to the wall. I mean, it was unbelievable what flack she got. And then it wasn't until June 18th. I mean, it was nothing. It was uncanny that, that here was a public safety issue, and yet no one was doing anything. I mean, they were just blowing it off. But it wasn't until June 18th when a USA Today article came out that opened our sighting to international scrutiny that were deluged by media from all over the world. I mean, for the first time, and that was where, where the hysteria was that, that, that Symington talks about, because it uh-huh. wasn't, with the, wasn't with the people. Everybody was just curious. But the media, overnight, it was unbelievable. By the morning, there were morning shows, every news show. I mean, it was, it was just unbelievable. And that's when, when you look at the data, the very next day, later that morning, that's when Symington called his unscheduled press conference. He had to do something, okay? And then by the afternoon, he had his press conference and marches out one of his aides with the family in head, and it really offended many, many people. Now, after he did that, I really did my homework with the military. They didn't know anything. I mean, I have conversations in my book that are even comical. I mean, they were just as curious as we were, okay? And, and there was no explanation. I mean, it was, they didn't know what to do, essentially. And... And, and this is really important, the only hard evidence, the only hard evidence, because some people, I mean, we didn't have cell phones at the time that had uh, uh, cameras in them, and, you know, people are out and about with a camera in their hand. But those that did try to take a picture, it was so huge and massive, it blocked out the stars. So, you know, the, the pictures didn't turn out, and the only hard evidence were the handful of videos around 10 o'clock, okay? That's the only thing that they had to debunk because, you know, stories, people could just, they could just blow those off, but they couldn't blow off the evidence, and now it was out there. Now the TV stations and the news media were on top of it, and they had the videos. And so whoever thought of it was brilliant because the, the video doesn't do it justice. Uh, they're much smaller. They flicker. They're white in the videos. But the, the formations themselves, if you look at it, I mean, are, are really compelling because, you know, uh, flares can't stay in formation like that. But at any rate, um, one month later, after the USA Today article, I get a call from one of the heads of PR at the Air National Guard. Oh, Dr. Keith, Dr. Lynn, we know what these lights were back in March. We think we know what they are. I said, really? And I was looking for any logical explanation. And she says, yes, you believe that in, like this is four and a half months later, nobody ever looked at the log for visiting Air National Guard. And the Maryland Air National Guard was in town sending off flares in Operation Snowbird which, by the way, um, I learned means diversionary tactical maneuvers. So if they were sending off flares somewhere, I'm not surprised. But that's not what people describe statewide, okay? Yes. Um, not yes, only that, not only that, but I said to her, I said, when was the uh, Air National Guard in town? She says March 1st to the 15th. I said, were they in town uh, in January? She says, oh, no. I said, are you sure? She says, absolutely. I said, well, I have 35-millimeter photographs of the same phenomena in the same location confirmed by air traffic controllers as hovering at 1,000 feet altitude in Class B restricted airspace. And she says, you never told me that. <laughs> and, then she, and, then, wait a minute, and then I said, 
besides that, I said, you're trying to say that flares that cannot keep a formation, they, they twist and drop in minutes haphazardly and have huge smoke trails illuminated by the flare itself and are supposed to illuminate the area. That's what they are, military illumination flares, which yes. not one uh. person described. Uh, and it's 15 years later. Um, and I said, you're trying to say that that, that, that that they can actually traverse the entire state in a mile-wide, equally distant formation, equidistant from each other, V formation, um, for hours. And she says, uh, I have a call coming in. I'll get back to you. Well, I'm still waiting. <laughs> 15 years <laughs> later. So that, well, that kind of convinced me that, whoa, you know, something's going on here. But still, okay, I was open, as were others. Reenacted. Even Frances Barwood, then councilwoman, she was running for secretary of state on a platform to get answers three years later for the Phoenix Lights and was asking publicly for a reenactment in the paper. And suddenly we hear that three Air National Guards are coming into town. No, no, if you're if you're not from Phoenix and at that time and we're up on things, you don't know about this. Okay, most people have no clue that this happened, and it's really important to to share because. Three Air National Guards announced publicly that they were coming into town to send off flares and reenact the Phoenix Lights. And on March 7th, they tried. And we were ready for them with media and witnesses. And it was, I have to say, you know, a, a, a you can't even say failure. I mean, it was it was beyond a failure for them because, um, and you can look, see the footage, actually, if you go on the news page on the Phoenix Lights Network website, and you go down, I think it's the second um, row there, to, to AZ Family uh, 3. There is a report that we did last year showing that footage that was taken on um, March 7th, 2000, of the military flare drop. And it's, it's, uh, it's really um, quite, quite humorous because they tried to make a triangle with it upside down. It fell apart immediately. You can see the, the smoke trails. I mean, it, it just was a joke. So, uh, you know, I have to say that I... Um, at that point, was pretty convinced that hey, the military had their shot, and they blew it. And yes, they, um, uh, to this day, did. to this day, it's never been reenacted. I'm sorry. Yes, unfortunately, my producer is giving me the the high sign here, and I want to say that you produced a uh, a DVD uh, by the name of the Phoenix Lights, and you also wrote a book of the same name, and uh, your website is www the phoenix lights.net so um thank for you for that I, I i hope people will will just pick it up and and that's why i came forward after seven years of anonymity because the information just seemed too important not to share and certainly as an educator i felt obliged to to share the data and people can decide for themselves but um you know it's there if, if it's they there to look right. at it. And thank you for letting people know about it. Of really course, and I encourage uh, everyone to uh, to go to that website. Uh, thank you, uh, Dr. Lynn. We very much appreciate your uh, coming on to our program. Okay, keep looking up. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks much. Okay, bye okay, now. Bye bye. Now. Bye. What are the takeaways from uh, our today's show? Well, first of all, the Phoenix lights were obviously not flares or any other natural phenomenon. Secondly, these lights were seen by hundreds of people in Phoenix and in other states. And they weren't just seen at nights, they were also seen during the day, beginning in northern uh, Arizona. 
And there were various uh, types of craft that were seen. There was a V-shaped craft. There was a very large triangular-shaped craft. There were orbs. And then there were also reported some kind of disc-shaped object. Lastly, Dr. Lin's medical career as a doctor and an educator completely changed when this event, series of events, I should say, took place. And now her um, personal life is totally dedicated in an entirely different form of education. Well, that winds up our uh, show for today. Are you a skeptic or have you had your own UFO experience? For those of you who would like to appear on Our UFOs Real, please contact us at tkeller at dc.rr.com. Thanks for tuning in and staying tuned. We hope this and future shows will truly be mind-opening.